Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Patrick Jinks. Each week, through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and professional speaker. And now, here's Patrick. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 40. 40 episodes. It's a milestone. Episode 40 of the Leadership Window Podcast. I am Patrick Jinks. I'm a leadership and strategy coach, and I'm president of the Jinx Perspective. We help nonprofit organizations achieve clarity in their work, simplicity, and alignment. And we do it through leadership, executive coaching, team coaching, employee engagement, strategic planning, board engagement, and a few other things, but that's pretty much it. We have an amazing program. I've been working on setting this one up for, I don't know, just about since we started the show back in October. Um, we had our guest's husband on the program, Forrest Alton. And uh, I said, Forrest, um, I, we're, I'm gonna want, I'm gonna want Heather on the show. And he said, okay, we'll, we'll we, I'm sure she'll, I'm sure she will do that. Give us a minute <laughs> because they had just moved from our hometown here in Columbia, South Carolina to Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, we're gonna hear an exciting story about why they moved. But uh, it's been yeah, not quite a year, but we've been working on making this happen and it's finally here. I'm so excited about our program today and we're gonna introduce Dr. Heather Brandt to you here in just a moment. But first, we uh, want you to hear from our podcast sponsor, Leadership Systems who have some exclusive discounts just for listeners of this podcast. And we want to make sure you're aware of it. So here is Michael. Hey, this is Michael Wallace with Leadership Systems Incorporated. And on behalf of LSI, I want to say thanks for supporting our friend Patrick Jinks and the Leadership Window Podcast. We've been partnering with Patrick for many years, and we are so proud to have him represent us as an LSI certified executive coach. As a mutual friend, we'd like to offer you exclusive rates on some of the same training that Patrick has received over the years, as well as some new experiences that we've been developing. Head over to leadershipsystems.com slash jinx to see the upcoming training events on our calendar and register today to keep learning and growing. Again, that's leadershipsystems.com slash jinx, J-I-N-K-S, for exclusive pricing on LSI's virtual and in-person training events. Thanks a lot. So let me add my two cents. LSI is the place to go if you want to be trained to be a coach. And if you're a leader inside an organization and want to sharpen your coaching skills for your team, LSI is the ideal place to go. And if you're looking to become a coach as a profession, particularly if you want to become certified as I am uh, through LSI, that is the place to go. So the offerings that they have and the discounts that they're offering on their events are training events but of course they also do executive coaching themselves. So anyway, we really appreciate our partnership with leadership systems. Dr. Heather Brandt is the director of the HPV cancer prevention program at St. Jude children's research hospital. And she's co-associate director for outreach in the St. Jude comprehensive cancer center. She also serves as a full member of the cancer center in the department of epidemiology and cancer control. When I met Heather a number of years ago, she I knew her as the co-founder of uh, 1000 Feathers, which is a, a consulting firm that was based in, here in Columbia, South Carolina that her husband Forrest um, has told us about. 
And she was also faculty at the Arnold School of Public Health here at the University of South Carolina in Columbia. She was, um, when, when she left here, she left as associate dean in the graduate school of the Arnold School. And so um, now she's in Memphis, Tennessee at St. Jude's. And I'm, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to steal any of her thunder because I want her to tell the story. But I remember when Forrest came to me and uh, told me that um, they were going to be moving to Memphis and why I was just so jazzed for this opportunity. And Heather, I know you were, so I can't wait to hear about it. Thank you for finally making this happen and working it out and being on the program with me. Welcome. Thank you, Patrick. I'm pleased to join you and have a chance to talk about St. Jude and the amazing possibilities that become reality here. Ooh, I like that. The amazing possibilities that become reality. That sounds like a tagline, but yet you said it really authentically. I think you believe it. Um, man, you just, you just, um, this had to be just almost surreal. What an, what an opportunity. What a, what a, what a, what a career shift. We'll talk about that too, but, uh, you know, it's not too late again to say congratulations on this amazing, um, opportunity at St. Jude. I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, why don't you just start by telling it, let our listeners get to know you a little bit, tell us a little bit about yourself and particularly your leadership journey to this point. Um, obviously, you know, when we think about academics, we think, we think about academia, it's a whole leadership culture inside that. And, uh, we can certainly talk about that, but tell us about your leadership journey to this point and, and up to, up to this, um, amazing thing that you're leading at St. Jude. Great. Well, you know, first I, I think of myself as a, as a partner to Forrest, uh, as a daughter, a sister, an aunt, a friend, a dog mom, if that's a, a term to our <laughs> latest edition, a Cavapoo puppy named Elvis, who lives here with us in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Elvis is, an al- is alive and well here. Uh, and So as I think about that, you know, tell me who you are. I think it just really feeds into the story of my leadership journey. And I'm the, I'm the storyteller today, and what a great privilege to get to, to tell this. Um, so I'm a first-generation college student. I grew up in a small rural town in northeastern Iowa called Fairbank. And uh, my first paid job was a babysitter, followed closely by picking up rock, roguing beans, and detasseling corn. I feel as if I was raised by a village, and uh, part of that village has been carried with me my entire life. Uh, I had big dreams, and I've worked really hard to see those dreams become reality. I wanted to succeed. Uh, Success to me always has been an evolving concept, meaning different things to me at different points in my life, and I always worked really hard to put myself in a position to become successful. And I carry those lessons with me, certainly. And I really seek to pay forward uh, and give back as much as I can. And while I said I was raised in a small rural town, I think it's important to acknowledge that my parents didn't raise me to have a small mind, uh, even though neither of them uh, attended college. Uh, they, They just instilled in me a sense of wonder and a sense of work 
and a sense of promise of good things to come that really has continued to, to carry with me uh, throughout my, my early years. And uh, to the University of Iowa, I'm a proud alumni of the University of Iowa, and certainly then on to South Carolina, uh, where I was a graduate student, uh, did my master's and my doctoral degree there. And it was really through a combination of those early experiences, you know, leading into my undergraduate years and then my graduate years at the University of South Carolina for my master's and doctoral work where, you know, you learn a lot of, of life lessons, but I still think that I'm this kid from Fairbank, Iowa, the daughter of Jean and Patty Brandt, a product of Wapsie Valley Schools, who made my way to the University of Iowa, the University of South Carolina, to a faculty position, an administrative position there, and now to here at St. Jude, with most of those lessons having a really meaningful impact on my decisions and finding a place for me. And I feel as if that question you get asked when you're younger, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I feel confident in the answer that I have to give you today, but I'm not sure what tomorrow will hold. And I think that really reflects that dream, uh, that dream that comes from finding my way in the world and, and where I can make a difference and have the most impact. So I think all of those formative years in that small town and, and to where I am today have really driven my journey. Um, the last thing I want to mention sort of about this is that I find uh, when we reflect on leadership and, and maybe, Patrick, you've had this experience in talking with others and I've had the chance to listen to a couple of the previous podcasts. I think we're all drawn to those formative periods and I want to acknowledge my privilege in the space to have been raised uh, in such a loving home and in such a loving community that gave me the safety and security to be able to pursue uh, these ideas, some of them crazy ideas at the time, and some of them uh, not crazy enough, I guess I'll say. And I think those are important contextual components to where I've ended up and, and where my journey has, has brought me today. Wow. No doubt. And uh, listen, okay. I'm, uh, you've, I'm already like, my brain is already smoking here. Um, I know why you got the job now. <laughs> it's because <laughs> it's because you were asked the question at the interview. Tell us about yourself. That's how you got the job. Because I will tell you, I've asked that question. I don't know how many times in interviews and hiring people. So tell us a little bit about yourself. And most people read their resume to me when I ask them that question. And after a while, I learned to say, okay, so that was a real good summary of your, of your resume. Now, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about yourself. And they, they look at me with this stunned look like, uh, wait, okay, I thought that's what I just did. And I said, no, about yourself. Tell me about you. And you just did that. And it was beautifully, I mean, you gave us a, a quite a glimpse into who you are with that. I mean, obviously cursory at this point, but I really appreciate it. It's a refreshing response to that question. And it does tell us a little bit about um, 
first of all, you're, you're in uh, the, I love the, the remark about um, not being raised, have a small mind, you know, mm-hmm. even, even though you're from a small community. And I, I think it's amazing how many stories of these, you know, legendary icons who grew up really with, you know, not much or in a small town or, uh, many of them with a lot less privilege than what you just mentioned having and what mm-hmm. I've had. And, uh, so anyway, I just mm-hmm. amazed. I'm just, I'm really inspired by that. Um, and, and I can't believe it's been, so you've been there. Is it, a, is it a year? Not Almost. quite. So yeah, close. We're at um, about 10 months. So I started here at St. Jude in July, 2020, That's right. Uh, okay. right in the midst of the COVID-19 uh, yeah. pandemic. That's the, still good. The last time you and I met in person, I think it was at a bar in downtown Columbia <laughs> for a reception of sorts, an informal gathering of some of us who were at the Together SC uh, Summit, which is our state nonprofit um, association conference. And yeah, I remember, I remember some of that conversation, Heather, that was, wasn't that in March? Yeah. We were like, uh, okay, so there's this, like this new thing, uh, coronavirus that's out. And I remember asking you, you know, uh, I'm a, I, I've got a flight scheduled. Should I fly or should I not? Like, we didn't know, we didn't know anything at that point. Of course I right. turned to you because um, cause you're going to give me the scientific answer and not the political answer to things. So I, <laughs> I you know, on social media and everything else, I like, eh, so what, what do you think about this? Cause you know, mm-hmm. I'm like epidemiologist and stuff, you know, but isn't that, well, what a, what a year it's been. I agree. And I think about that conversation as we were talking about doing this episode and I think about how naive I was. And Mm -hmm. I generally am not naive when it comes to these types of things because I've put myself in the position to have the knowledge and understanding and intuition to sort of read the the situation. Uh, But in this case, I was very naive. And unfortunately, so many of us have lost loved ones as a result of of this pandemic. And of course, not the focus of what we're talking about today, but um, maybe a lesson in leadership is owning my naivete in a situation and admitting that, uh, you know, I I erred in thinking how uh, our country may be able to manage and mitigate risk and, and not end up where we are today. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I, I agree. Same here. I, I think, I think so many of us were in part, part of it, I'm sure is we were somewhat in denial. I mean, we didn't want, you know, I, I remember people going, well, when do you, when do you think we'll be able to, and I'm like, eh, probably by May things will be, and I, yeah, May of uh, 2021. We're, we're here now and we're still not really out of it. And, but yeah, I, and I think we've all learned some leadership lessons, um, you know, Forrest and I, along with, um, uh, another one of our colleagues, your colleagues, Tom Klaus and Charles Weathers, we, we did a series of blogs about leading during a crisis. And one of the things I thought about during those blogs that we were writing was that if we watch the national scene of leadership, and of course we've had a presidential transition in the, in this period of time, but we also have how leaders are leading at the state levels, how leaders are leading at the local levels and municipal levels. And we won't yeah. get into where you fall politically or any of that for our listeners. But I think we can all say we've seen some good examples of leadership and we've seen probably a lot of bad examples in leadership 
in a crisis, particularly when it comes to things like communication. So mm-hmm. if, if we can take those learnings and instead of, you know, our just sort of all the political vitriol that we see all over the place, take them to our organization and say, okay, what can I learn? What can I learn from this to make me a better leader in my shop, in my business, in my organization? Right. And earlier today, I'll just I'll just quickly throw in this tidbit. I was reminded of following the devastating effects of Hurricane Katrina, which may have been limited to a particular region of our country, but certainly drove change. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened was most of the medical records, notes about care, et cetera, of those who were in hospitals was all written on paper. That was stored in the lower levels of buildings that were completely flooded and destroyed. Mm. And so they had no information. And that served as a driving force to the electronic medical record evolution because we couldn't imagine putting ourselves in a place. And so I find myself thinking about what have we learned and how can we reemerge stronger? What do we need to reimagine? What do we keep? What's new that we decide is going to fit our needs? And I think often about lessons like that historically that drive us into space where innovation becomes a tool for moving forward. And I think we have lots of examples of that right now. So well said. I mean, it is the, it is the cliche, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, yeah, we have seen it and I've seen it a lot with, I, I know you all have it 1000 feathers. I've seen it a lot with our clients, our nonprofit mm-hmm. clients who have done things. I'm always lamenting at, at how slow the nonprofit sector moves and you know uh, how, come over to academia for a little while <laughs> <laughs> and and how and how uh you know just the you lament the lack of innovation or the bureaucracy or or whatever and i'm watching some of my clients do some really cool great things because the space was opened up to say mm-hmm. we got to take off the the barriers here and do things faster than we thought we could with more trust than we thought we had um, and, and with a bolder vision than we thought we had. And I'm, my hope is that we carry that post COVID and, and, you know, live that way as leaders. I, I, we forget quickly, I know, but hopefully this does project us in to some positive areas over the long term. Um, we have all heard about St. Jude. I mean, we've seen the ads on TV. St. Jude is one of those household brand names. And I am certain that it is one of those organizations that we probably know very little about (laughs) because uh, there's just so much going on there. And just in my earlier conversations with you a a few weeks ago, I learned some things I didn't know, but I I don't want to take up the whole episode for it, obviously, but I I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about what's the story. Tell us the St. Jude story and maybe maybe a part of St. Jude that most people don't realize that now that you're on the inside, you've learned or you you think people should probably understand and appreciate us about St. Jude. And uh, just tell us the story. Mm-hmm. What an honor to have the chance to talk about St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Uh, you know, here at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, the main mission is to advance cures and means of prevention for pediatric catastrophic diseases through research and treatment. 
And that's really built on the vision of the founder of St. Jude, Danny Thomas, where no child is denied treatment based on race, religion, or a family's ability to pay. And Danny Thomas opened St. Jude uh, here in Memphis. Uh, he, was a, he was a struggling entertainer uh, with a wife and a baby on the way. And he took his last $7 and put it in the collection box at church on a Sunday. And he prayed uh, to St. Jude Thaddeus, who's the patron saint of lost causes, and for a way to pay the hospital bills after his first child's birth. And the next day, he actually landed a role that would pay 10 times over uh, what he gave to the church, um, demonstrating a power of prayer to him. And Danny was of Lebanese descent, and he asked Americans of Arabic-speaking heritage to embrace St. Jude as a way of repaying America for these opportunities given to them and their families. And so he and approximately, oh, a hundred or more people who also were from these Arab-speaking communities around the country founded ALSAC, which is the American Lebanese Syrian Associated Charities um, in the late 1950s. And um, fast forward to where we are today here in Memphis, and he intentionally chose Memphis to be the home of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Uh, he was an altar boy for a cardinal in Chicago. And as an adult, he approached uh, the leader of this church on how to honor the promise he made to St. Jude all those years ago when he was expecting his first child. And uh, the cardinal who had a parish, uh, his first one, in fact, was in Memphis, asked Danny to consider building this dream hospital to provide care for children in Memphis. He talked about the community and the need and that Memphis was located centrally in the country and it was important as a transportation center. And so uh, he built that dream here uh, in Memphis. And it's, a, it's quite a testament to the power of his belief in his prayer and his desire to pay back. And so while St. Jude is located right here in Memphis, St. Jude also has a network of eight affiliate clinics around the United States. And those are largely located in the center, mid-south and southern um, part of the country, but those serve as a conduit and access point as well for uh, parents and children who are suffering from catastrophic conditions to be able to get care. So it's a really amazing place here at St. Jude. And earlier I said, I think St. Jude is, is where possibilities become reality. And that's certainly the case. And ALSAC is the main fundraising entity for St. Jude. And then here at St. Jude, we're driving forward research and treatment across a, a range of issues affecting children. And St. Jude also freely shares the discoveries that are made, which means that doctors and scientists and children and their families around the world can use that knowledge to save thousands more children. And it all started with uh, Danny Thomas and a prayer. And it's quite a, quite a marvelous institution to be a part of. Mm. What a model and what a story. And I'm guessing the child they were having at the time was Marlo. 
I think so. I think I should know that right off the top of my head, but I believe Marlo was the the firstborn. Okay. Because I mean, Marlo is the one I think most of us, at least my age, associate with St. Jude all the years that she has been such a spokesperson and partner with St. Jude. And I, I never, I didn't know, of course, that it was Danny that it, I didn't know the whole story, but it's, that's, it's just incredible. Um, now let's, let's get to your work. Um, yes. because, and you know, none of us are, uh, none of us are going to understand any of it. Right. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, tell us, tell us about it, um, in a way that maybe we can understand what it is you're doing, because it, again, as I understood it, this was a little bit that the assignment that you've been given here is uh, sounded to me almost like, like, uh, a startup, but inside an organization that already was well-established, if that makes any sense. That's kind of how I thought about it when it was described to me what you were doing, but I'll let you describe it better and tell us what this is that you're leading at St. Jude. Sure. Well, first, you know, I'm not so sure that the traditional conceptualization of a startup applies because uh, the institution has made a large strategic investment in the program. So we're not going to have to generate capital mm-hmm. or income uh, for the program. But wow. in terms of thinking about the program as being juxtaposed within the institution and starting something new, that definitely is in the spirit of, of this program. So this program is actually um, part of a, of a blue sky initiative to accelerate progress in a space where there's opportunity. So you just heard a little bit about the founding of St. Jude in 1962. And since that time, St. Jude has driven change. I mean, transformed survival rates for pediatric cancer. More kids survive today from cancer than ever before. And it just improves every year. And so since the starting of St. Jude, Clinicians and researchers here have asked these really big what-if questions, and these are the questions that have changed the landscape of childhood catastrophic diseases. So uh, today, we know that these types of big-picture thinking and what-if question opportunities arise constantly. They beg questions for us for how can we identify and pursue bold new projects that are really going to transform science and medicine. And so at St. Jude, this is called this blue sky process. Uh, Dr. Jim Downing is the president and CEO here at St. Jude. So he initiated this process to sort of, guys, let's keep asking these what F questions to be able to catalyze the space. And One idea came from Dr. Downing's participation in a national meeting that was focused on cancer research. Uh, It was through these meetings, which actually were part of then Vice President Biden's cancer moonshot initiative. So also another big name, a moonshot Mm -hmm. uh, initiative. And it was through these meetings that Dr. Downing learned of the slow uptake of HPV vaccination to prevent some types of cancer. So he came back and he shared this observation with Dr. Charlie Roberts, who's the director of the St. Jude Comprehensive Cancer Center and others here. He said, um, what if we at St. Jude could accelerate efforts to prevent adult cancers by vaccinating children? And Dr. Roberts and others said, you know, we don't know how to prevent 
pediatric cancers. But here is an opportunity to support a safe, effective, and durable vaccine given to children to prevent six types of cancers developed as adults. So St. Jude, as the only NCI-designated cancer center or National Cancer Institute-designated cancer center dedicated solely to children, has an important role to play in this space uh, to increase HPV vaccination rates for that reason. We do not yet know how to prevent the pediatric cancers that afflict patients at St. Jude, but we do know how to prevent six types of HPV cancers. Uh, that are developed by men and women. So let me talk a little bit about the opportunity here and what begged this what if question. So here in the United States, HPV vaccination has been routinely recommended since 2006. So for the last 15 years, we've had a vaccine that we know can prevent cancer. Unfortunately, HPV vaccination uptake has been slow. HPV vaccination has been shown to be safe. It works and it provides long lasting protection, but this uptake is slow and less than optimal. And the sad part of this story today is that low HPV vaccination uptake exists in areas where HPV associated diseases are Mm -hmm. the greatest. So where those rates of HPV or human papillomavirus, I should have included that early on, is greatest. So what an opportunity for impact. So this new program, the HPV Cancer Prevention Program at St. Jude, is really focused on how can we use these resources given to us by the institution in this blue sky spirit to galvanize existing successful efforts that are maybe limited by reach or resources and introduce new ones to help drive increases in HPV vaccination. And so St. Jude is just an ideal place and space uh, for this work to occur. And I think often about that word success that I alluded to and how it's evolved uh, in my leadership journey. Well, one thing about success that has stayed with me is I've spent the last 27 years of my life studying HPV. And since the vaccine was introduced, trying to get rates of uptake high so that we could prevent these cancers. And I would have to say that it would be a big failure for me in my journey to look back and think I was unsuccessful in helping. I failed on my watch generations of kids who are going to develop these cancers as adults that could have been completely prevented. Mm -hmm. And so this opportunity to lead this new program at St. Jude is a tremendous opportunity to help Not only, it sounds selfish to say it's about my own journey, it's not, but it's about how can I make sure that kids today are protected from cancers they could get as adults. And and that's a really important part of of why this position and and why now. Man. Um, All right. I have so many questions. Where do I want to go with this? I I think I want to ask... 
while it's on my mind is is access the bigger problem or is attitude the bigger problem you know there's a lot of people i mean vaccines are kind of controversial you know people some people don't trust them no matter what it is um is is it about educating people to to understand and trust it or is it about providing access to it or is or is it more than that as well so i think it's a combination of factors um the world health organization has actually identified vaccine hesitancy as a major threat to global health and well-being because so many people have developed distrust for vaccinations. This certainly wasn't the case years ago. Uh, With renewed focus on mis- and disinformation campaigns, we see the erosion of confidence in vaccines. Vaccines that brought the end to polio, smallpox, Mm have been identified as a major public health achievement during the 20th century. We no longer had to worry about breaking out uh, with vaccine preventable diseases like measles and others in communities. Unfortunately, that's not the case because of these campaigns to really raise suspicion in people's minds about vaccines. That certainly is a big part of it. And we have a lot of needs to be able to um, to be able to build vaccine confidence uh, in people to help combat the myths and disinformation that is put forth. That's certainly a major driver um, of about vaccination uptake and challenges related to vaccination. Um, We also know that the HPV vaccine in particular uh, really is created as an other. (laughs) So 11 to 12 year olds in the US are recommended to have three vaccines, pertussis, HPV, and meningitis. And then of course, a fourth meaning a seasonal flu vaccine. Um, But what happens is when a healthcare provider maybe introduces to the parent the need for a care or caregiver, the need for a child to have a vaccine, that the the healthcare provider may say something like, "Um, today, Sophia needs to have pertussis and meningitis for school. And and what did you want to do about HPV? And so that absence of a strong recommendation of the same ilk as that for pertussis and meningitis creates an otherness to the vaccine. So there's some of that happening. Um, And then I think the third thing that I will mention here, so we've got vaccine hesitancy, the need to build vaccination confidence, uh, and the erosion of that over time. We have the way in which healthcare providers and then within a healthcare provider setting from check-in to check-out, that person influences vaccination decisions. So if when Sophia's parent checks her in, the person at the front desk says, well, today Sophia needs two vaccines for school and you need to decide what you want to do about HPV, and then when the parent gets back there, the provider gives a very strong recommendation. The parent may be thinking about how that vaccine was introduced. And so these may seem like small 
issues, but they're actually large nudges that push people into a distrustful space. Um, And the third thing I think is there's combination of access related factors in some areas. Um, It is a multi-dose series to ensure um, full immunogenic response meaning that you need to have two doses if you initiate before the 15th birthday and three doses thereafter, because we want to make sure that uh, if someone gets the vaccine, that they're protected for a long time. So I think there are some factors like that that sort of uh, work against uptake. But at the same time, we do have about 54% uptake overall in the U.S. with some pretty significant variability by geographic region and within states and for some populations. Uh, gosh, I want to ask all the medical questions now. And this is a leadership, <laughs> this is a leadership podcast. Oh, my gosh. Um, so uh, let me see if I can get to, them, uh, get to a couple of them quickly. So I'm obviously I'm thinking about the COVID-19 vi- uh, vaccines and mm-hmm. there's a slow uptake there too. I just have yes. my, I just have my second shot today, by the way. Oh, um, good. And so thank you for doing your part. Well, for us. Uh, you know, I, I, I get it. I understand. I, I hear people's reason for not, you know, taking the vaccine or, or whatever. And, and I, I, I know enough about herd immunity to know that it doesn't require a hundred percent of the people to take it, but there's a critical mass, mm-hmm. but you know, the uptake is slow on this too. And um, so I'm just wondering, does, does does COVID-19, does what's going on with the vaccine hesitation with this affect, I mean, I'm guessing it has to affect the work that you're doing, has to make it even harder because the, now there's just, you're getting this whole culture of this hesitancy that is mm-hmm. exaggerated and amplified by the environment we have right now around the COVID vaccines. Yeah, uh, vaccine. So vaccine acceptance occurs on a continuum and so does vaccine hesitancy. So vaccine hesitancy could mean that maybe somebody doesn't get a flu shot each year, but gets every other vaccine and Mm. maybe does the same for their child. Um, And we do see the greatest hesitancy for flu vaccine, HPV vaccine, and now we're seeing it for the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, And so we have a real need to combat myths and disinformation efforts that are out there. Um, But more importantly, we need to build systems and structures where equity is the foundation. We can't force equity into fundamentally inequitable systems. And there's just a lot of distrust inherent within those systems right now. So this is going to require us to come up with new and innovative ways to build confidence in vaccines. And part of building confidence in vaccines is making them accessible and available and with accommodation so that people can see how how these vaccines were brought to market. Uh, We have to be transparent. We have to use trusted messengers. And that's that's a different take on previous approaches. But if we, if we truly want to see the pandemic brought to an end and control outbreaks of additional variants and ensure that not another one of us has to lose someone we love, uh, someone who has, whose life has meaning, uh, we really need to think about how we're doing this and, and go all in 
Um, there's a lot of one-on-one conversations that happen uh, that can really drive change. And we need consistent messaging on a big level, but also we need to make sure that those one-on-ones are answering, um, answering the questions. And it's also important to note with vaccine hesitancy that we want to acknowledge that it differs by time and it differs for vaccine type. And just because today someone may not yet be ready for a COVID-19 vaccine, they might be tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so we can't just throw in the towel and quit having those conversations those conversations may be challenging and maybe difficult. Um, we hear from people who have not yet decided to be vaccinated with a COVID-19 vaccine, new reasons every day. Yeah. And those are fueled by myths and disinformation campaigns that are intentionally pushing out messages that counter the messages that are bringing transparent and meaningful information. So we have our work cut out for us in this space. And in the HPV vaccine world, we're no stranger to that. Yeah. Uh, we've been we've been working very hard. We've had a vaccine that prevents six types of cancer affecting men and women. Um, and we still struggle with, with that uptake. All right. I'm going to ask my last scientific question of the night. <laughs> um, when, when roughly will we have enough data to make a result case of how we've, how we're preventing adult cancer through childhood vaccinations? Thanks for asking that question. I'm really excited to tell you that we already have those data. Uh, Late last year, a study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that if someone was vaccinated by age 17, that they basically had 100% protection against invasive cervical cancer. So we know today that HPV vaccination is cancer prevention. Uh, And it's especially important to be vaccinated at the recommended ages. So currently the CDC recommends routine vaccination at ages 11 to 12 and as early as age nine. And it's incredibly important to get those vaccines at the age at which they're recommended. And we're starting to see that pay off in protection in terms of preventing actual cancers, not just precancers. We've known for many years that protection against precancer has has been quite conclusive, but now actually showing that 15 years after introduction, we're seeing cancers prevented. That's great. That's tremendous. Well, I, I, I think you've, you've probably answered a great deal of one question I was going to ask you, which is, I, I'm sure, I know that when you announced that you were leaving USC, people that know you went, wait, 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 whoa, whoa, Heather. <laughs> they did. <laughs> what are you doing here? You've got this amazing tenured senior dream job at, you know, a great university doing and I, you probably answered some of that, but what I'm wondering is how much of what you just told me did you already know before you took this job versus how much you've learned since you got there? Because I, I think that's been the big question is why would why would you leave such a, I mean, you got an amazing thing here. 
I, I certainly did. And I lived in South Carolina for about 23 years. And the University of South Carolina is incredibly special to me. And it's through that university that I met my life partner, Forrest. So it will always be special. Um, I'd established this legion of friends, colleagues, and collaborators through my life and work there. And my growth personally and professionally was truly exponential during that period of my life. Uh, you already alluded to the faculty and administrative position that I held. Um, I enjoyed my work. I worked with great people. I liked USC. I cared about my neighbors in South Carolina, and I still do. Um, but my path forward as a leader at USC was unclear. Uh, I felt that I had reached my pinnacle there. Um, and that's sometimes the way it is in academia. At that time, my long-term... Say that again, in, sorry. And that's that way in anything. That's that's actually a big leadership tenant is kind of knowing when you might be out of space to, to move and grow. Or, or yes. you don't know the path. You, the path isn't clear anyway. Exactly. Uh, and, and so at that time, my long-term goal included serving at the highest level of leadership in academia. I wanted to be a college president, uh, a college provost. And I knew that might not happen at USC, uh, but I wanted to continue to grow there. Um, but I couldn't get there from where I was. Mm. And that's a really hard reality to embrace when I think about I loved my work. I worked with great people. I liked the institution. I loved where I lived. So I had to start to entertain other opportunities and really find a place where I could continue to learn and grow as a leader. And it was a very difficult decision. So when I was at that inflection point, I really engaged in an intentional process of deep self-reflection. And of course, it wasn't just me. It was also with my life partner. And this decision wouldn't just affect me, but affect us. And here I was, a tenured full professor of public health, an associate dean in the graduate school with no path forward. It, it just wasn't there to me. And the former provost at the University of South Carolina shared this quote with me when she found out I had made the decision to leave. She said, it's a William Faulkner quote, um, you cannot swim for new horizons until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. And it just reframed that inflection for me as, did I have enough courage to take that leap? And I, I think I did, and I do, and I here I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... It, that quote just has always stuck with me because it really, it really was. Maybe I'm at the pinnacle. I'm at this juxtaposition of I've reached the highest level, um, but I love it and we're happy and things are going well, but yet is it enough? And so it's a bit of that internal struggle uh, that, that does take courage. I think we, I, I think it behooves us to think of our organizations like that. I mean, if we're, if we're, we're at a point as leaders where we uh, don't see, uh, I'll give the best way I can do this is through my own story. When I was at, um, United way in Danville, Virginia, it was my first CEO job of a nonprofit and it mm -hmm. was, it was magical. I mean, it's greatest times of my life, greatest years of my life, just fantastic. I learned so much and we accomplished so much. 
But I realized after about seven years that the vision I had coming in that truly, I think, inspired the board and the community, what was the next one? And I didn't really have, I didn't really have the next vision. I had some things we were working on. We were always doing new things, but it wasn't the same thing. It would have taken some kind of bigger jump. And so I think it's important for us as leaders to understand when that's happening in our organization and make sure that the organization gets the leader with the next level vision. And that's not always us. And that's what happens with, you know, some CEOs who are in their positions just too long um, because they don't, they don't carry on from year to year that new, the same kind of vision that they had in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I agree. And, you know, in the end I had to trust me, right? I mean, I had to trust that I was ready for the opportunity, that I was prepared. Uh, I had to trust that I was going to be exactly where I was supposed to be, that I deserved to be there. Uh, I had to trust in Mm. my leadership skills and that I was going to continue to be the type of leader I would want to follow, Uh, trust in how I value people, uh, trust my vision, and and sort of a lot of trust had to come from from that discomfort and growth. I appreciate that because self-trust, you know, I've referenced a number of times, you're probably familiar with it, um, Covey's work on trust. Uh, The Mm -hmm. book, The Speed of Trust is fantastic. And one of the the metrics we use when we're measuring trust inside an organization is self-trust. And you kind of think it, well, that's a silly question. Of course, we all trust ourselves. No, it turns out we don't. We really don't trust ourselves, particularly, you know, trust comes on two levels. Do we trust our character and our motive? And do we trust our competence, our ability to do it? And so that's the two-sided equation. And when we're honest with each with ourselves, there are times when we sit down and we go, I don't know. I don't know if I'm up for this. Um, so how did you know you were prepared for that? This is a whole different thing that you're doing. And so how did you, right. what, what was, what prepared you for this? So I always think about that quote, uh, from Seneca or it's attributed to Seneca. Um, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I like to think I was prepared for the opportunity. I maybe didn't know it at the time, but I like to think I was. Mm. I had worked for so many years to gain knowledge and build skills and nurture relationships and grow personally and professionally. I also was given grace. I also made mistakes along the way, mistakes that were incredibly impactful and formative in my growth. And my greatest transformation really through this process occurred when I took that leap to assume that associate dean position while keeping my faculty position. I had never done that before. I had been a master's student in public health at South Carolina, a doctoral student in public health at South Carolina, a research faculty member, then a tenure track faculty member, and then a tenured professor, right? I hadn't ever gone outside of public health. And I learned that my skills transfer. (laughs) Uh, I was able to utilize my approach to how I do my work, you know, sort of this assessment while balancing the process and action and uh, implementing and evaluating 
improving and course correcting where needed in another setting. And so this gave me confidence in my knowledge, skills, and and own growth and ability to transfer those into a new setting. And as I said earlier, I think that I had to just trust. <laughs> I had mm-hmm. to have courage and, and trust in the in the process. And so I consider that I was working towards it. I maybe didn't know it at the time, but I was working towards being prepared for this opportunity. Well, I, I you know, I my natural bent on this show is when I listen to things like this, I think about the leadership implications. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. as leaders, that's what we should be thinking about for our people. How are we preparing them? How are we giving them space to fail? How are we giving them the confidence where they can truly trust their own abilities? And how are we teaching them about transferability? My son sent me a video a couple of weeks ago about a, a of a guy who was um, he wanted to go into research as a physicist, and he found the competition in academia was just fierce. Like there, all these you know people wanting these great positions at great universities and there just weren't that many positions and he ended up at bank of America. Mm-hmm. And, and so you think, okay, here's a physicist at bank of America, but his presentation that he was making on YouTube was it was about how he figured out all of the things he learned about being a physicist and understanding how those things work transfer to being mm-hmm. a banking analyst <laughs> and a data. Yeah. And like there, you know, there's, it's, it's, um, it's what I think it's how CEOs move from, from company, you know, how can you be the CEO of, you know, a big tech firm? And then you're also the CEO of a bank, you know, or you leave there to go be CEO of something else. I think it's because they, the people that realize what those transferable skills actually are. And, and by the way, I, just, I have to say this, when you talked about the Seneca quote, Arnold Palmer said it a little bit differently. He said, the more I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> also true. And, you know, it's, it's true. Like you, you hone your skill, you, you, um, you work at it, you figure out the transferability, you stretch yourself and then you trust yourself. So man, that, and you also have to cultivate an environment in which that's possible yes, to help yes, develop yes. future leaders. And I really try to build an environment that is going to allow psychological safety, <laughs> for people on my team. So the belief that they know that they're not going to be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas and questions, concerns, or or making mistakes, like that's how you find what those skills are that you can transfer. That's how you find the courage to think about what that path looks like. It, It all comes comes back to that. And I'm reminded of this book by Amy Edmondson called The Fearless Organization, where the crux of the fearless organization is the ability to cultivate a psychologically safe environment for teams to to thrive and for individuals to grow. Well said. I mean, leaders don't just just, um, foster performance. They foster more leadership. Yep. And, I agree. And, and from all angles. So talk about some of the other tenets that you're applying, the leadership tenets that you're applying then to building a team, because we, we talked about startup and the fact that you're not out there having to, you know, um, wrestle up a bunch of venture capitalists to fund your operation, no. <laughs> but you are starting a new a body of work within an existing organization. You're building your own team, if I'm not mistaken. 
And so what yes. are the, what are the leadership tenets you're finding are the most valuable and critical right now in the work you're doing? Gosh, um, you know, one that, one that I think is really important and it's one that I try to live every day is, is leading by example. I think as a leader, it's my responsibility to demonstrate how to behave and how to act professionally, perform tasks and do my work um, and, and model that behavior to help motivate and encourage people. And I really fundamentally believe that people are good and they want to do good things. Um, I think people want their neighbors to lead healthy and meaningful lives and are, are willing to help make this a reality. And I think we go farther by working together than alone, uh, which is another one. I think we just work together to achieve more. And my life and work have really centered around this belief system. Um, I try to work hard and bring people together. I mentioned in my introduction a little bit about this. I've really tried to build programs that foster the professional growth and development of people. And part of that comes back to this belief in people are inherently good. They want to do good things. And we work together to achieve more and trying to be effective and being the type of leader I would want to follow. I, I said that earlier, but it's just something that comes, comes back to me when I think about it. Um, I think that my belief system is predicated on that value of people, valuing their feelings, and, and quite frankly, their lives beyond my interactions with them. I think it's incredibly important to acknowledge that uh, success, big and small, comes in different forms and extend praise when there's progress and gentle, constructive urges and nudges when it's not. Um, and I think it's important to push people to learn and grow through that type of constructive feedback. I try to lead with kindness and thinking about being generous and friendly and consideration of these feelings. And I really find inspiration in other people um, and also within myself. I think that when people feel valued, that their potential is limitless. When they feel as if what they're doing is valued and meaningful, that uh, there is no blue sky limit to what they're doing. Um, I think a couple of others I'll, I'll mention are, in addition to leading by example and working together to achieve more and the relationships that you develop, or I really try to promote um, inclusivity in our work always thinking about whose voice do we not hear that we need to hear and how can we provide the space and safety for those voices to enter into play. And I've really tried to do that with building my team here in the St. Jude HPV Cancer Prevention Program. I, I will have failed if our team is a monolith. I want people who think differently who act differently, but who can find common ground in sharing the commitment of our program to dream of a world with fewer HPV cancers and that vaccination against HPV is a tool for us to get there. 
I think that type of intentional structure and inclusivity builds teams that are resilient, that are creative, and that are action-oriented. And I think those are some other pieces of of the puzzle for me. Um, One last thing I'll mention is that in the type of work that I'm doing here at St. Jude, um, I think, you know, sometimes we try to put ourselves in a box as a leader. Uh, I've just never really liked those quizzes or those schematics that say, if this is your style, this is what type of leader you are. Um, I think there are aspects of my leadership style that reflect sort of a transformative or relational approach, because I, I clearly think relationships matter and investments in my team members are, are critical to our success. But I also have this situational orientation where I'm able to adapt my style in response to what the situation demands of me. This is not something I could have done five years ago or 10 years ago. This is something I've intentionally worked on um, because there are situations that call for me to be a different type of leader. Um, Sometimes I have to be commanding. Sometimes I need to just be participating. And sometimes the best use of my leadership skills are, are to delegate. And I feel that in how I apply some of these leadership tenets that I've mentioned here are are really demonstrating this ability to be agile and and meet the situation with the type of leader that's needed. Well, I think you should start your own podcast (laughs) on on leadership. I mean, this is great, 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 great stuff. And, and it's backed up, as you know, all of this, all of these beliefs you're talking about, they're all backed up by research. They really are. I mean, self-determination theory and transformational mm-hmm. leadership. And uh, there, there's a ton of, of uh, research around this. Um, you know, I, I will say a word about the assessments because I get that a lot. I get because we use them and I, I think you guys may sure. use them in your work at thousand, 1000 Feathers too. We use them and I, I get a lot of people go, oh, I don't, you know, I don't believe in those. And it's like, well, what do you mean you don't believe in? Well, I don't want to be, I don't want to be, you can't reduce me to a, a color, right? Or a letter or a, like, mm-hmm. a, you know, you can't pigeonhole me into this thing. And they're so right about that. You really can't. I think people have to take these assessments um, in context and understand what they, what they do and what they don't do. As you bring up a great point, there's not this just one size one this is this is what you do all the time interestingly some of the most powerful assessments are the ones that tell you alert you from a self-aware standpoint of when you might move out of your strengths when you're stressed like you know so uh and by the way we like disc assessment for example is one that actually can change if you'd have taken disc Mm -hmm. five years ago while you were at usc and you took it today uh, there it's quite possible there the profile shows up different and they're both accurate they're both accurate they're just they're just the situation is different the context is different um you know the the work is different uh, from what you're doing so i i appreciate you bringing that up Yeah, I think, and you know, it's acknowledging that I have a growth mindset that when different situations demand for me to have different types of skills or expertise, Mm -hmm. you know, I try to seek that, uh, seek out that 
training and skill building opportunities to do that. And I was also thinking as you were talking about those different assessments that I just don't think of myself as a visionary leader. Like I never have. And I, I work with people who are visionary leaders and I, I really admire their ways of thinking and their abilities. And I happen to be married to one just as an aside, mm-hmm. um, but I'm, I'm much more of a goal oriented thinker who can systematically in a really organized fashion help us get from here to there. And, and maybe that is a type of visionary, but it's certainly not the traditional way in which that's conceptualized. And I also think of visionaries as being risk takers, and I'm just not a risk taker. I'm, I'm not risk adverse per se, but I may be risk hesitant to our earlier conversation about vaccine hesitancy. I, I may be risk hesitant. And um, I always think that if we're going to try something new and fail, that we have to do it early and quickly to, to pick up and move on, but never at the expense of sort of our, our commitment to work together. And I think it ties back to the relational way in which I approach building my team and this belief I have that people are good and believe in their abilities to accomplish more together. So I was thinking of that as you were you were talking about those different types of assessments, many of which I have completed um, over time. Yeah. But interesting to think that there is an uh, there can be an evolution. There most definitely there there usually is. Mm-hmm. I, um, and and if I were coaching you, I would ask you why you think you're not a visionary, right? But <laughs> but 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 I'm not. For but next I will say time. this. Yeah, but I will say this. I so just on this just in this conversation. I do. You're absolutely right. There are different aspects of vision. There's the visionary who dreams it up. And then there's the, there's the leader who can cast the vision. And that's what I hear you doing just in spades on this show is casting. I mean, I was going to ask you a question about mission and vision. Actually, it was going to be my, (laughs) my next question, but you've articulated it over and over on this show. I mean, and you've said, you know, a dream of a world where kids and that's vision. And so some, you need, you need people who can dream up the idea the the, you know, the, the person to ask the, what if question, right? What if we could, what if we could prevent adult cancer by, by vaccinating children? That's mm-hmm. the, what if that's the dreaming it up, but then there's the vision caster who has to champion it and cheerlead it and show people that it can be done. And, and help people believe in it. And, you know, that goal orientation, I mean, a goal is a vision. And so, well, and what, what better motivation to mm-hmm. achieve that world with fewer HPV cancers yeah. than to be working right here at St. Jude oh, man. in a place where there are sick children and their families who believe in the promise mm. and know that today we can prevent these children from getting a cancer or a second cancer in the case of the children being treated at St. Jude and a first for other children. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's quite a motivating factor for us here to keep that as our true North, that our focus is on preventing HPV cancers because here at St. Jude, we can't prevent these kids from the cancers that we're treating, but we know that we have this vaccine to prevent kids from getting these cancers as adults. Super inspiring. You know, we talk in the nonprofit sector all the time about root causes and, you know, how do you Mm -hmm. measure prevention and, you know, all these things. 
And, you know, everyone says, everyone talks about the cure for cancer. <laughs> what a vision to say, what if, what if we could just prevent it from happening to begin with, then we wouldn't have to cure it. What a great, right. what a great visionary concept. I want to honor your time. And I mean, this, could, I, boy, ugh, this, I, I don't want to stop, but I, but we will, we will stop, uh, but not yet. Uh, I, I, I ask a couple of questions of every guest that I have on Heather. And, and one of them is I'm always interested. I love the stories of who the leaders are in our early life or career. I think you mentioned having heard some of that on our previous episodes, mm-hmm. those, those formative things that form our, our view of leadership, our point of view, our, our theory and our practice. Um, who are one or two of the leaders in your early life or career that you would say helped shape your view of leadership today? Sure. So I think that uh, positionality and intersectionality were really formative on the way in which I think about leadership. So I, I think that I have to go back to sort of my feminist roots and uh, my women's studies time to really think about some of the stories that I that I heard that really shaped in the face of great adversity, how these women put to use their leadership skills and were able to bring about change. And so I, I thinking a little bit about what I knew of Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the time and her fights for equality and uh, regardless of sex, right? She fought hard for, for both men and women and their rights. Um, I also think about related to kind of intersectionality and positionality, Kimberly Crenshaw. When I first read her work on intersectionality and thinking about how my positionality in terms of my race, my class, my gender, um, how these can function as these overlapping and interdependent systems that create advantage or disadvantage in different situations. And that really shaped part of my belief and views about public health work, to be quite frank. Um, I also thought about a lot of women who were first. Um, Wilma Mankiller, uh, who was the first woman to serve as principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Uh, Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde, whose books just really inspired a way to think about how movements cast uh, action and and change belief systems. Um, And then more specifically in my world here of HPV, Henrietta Lacks and the story of how her immortal cells led to finding out that HPV was the cause of cervical cancer and other types of cancers. And then community organizing, so Saul Alinsky, um, Paulo Freire, and others, you know, their work has certainly shaped where I'm at today. And then um, lastly, I think since I was in high school and I first read the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that many of his words continue to, to stick with me even today. And especially being here in Memphis right now, where he took his last breath Mm. and where I'm sitting right now today while we're filming this podcast is not very many feet. In fact, less than a football field away from where he was brought after he was shot at the Lorraine uh, here at what used to be 
the St. Joseph Hospital, which is now um, part of the St. Jude campus here in Memphis. And so I would be remiss if I didn't mention that that spirit that I feel um, that he brought here for the sanitation strike and then unfortunately um, brought about his untimely death as he was murdered at that, at that hotel for the promise, the promise that he, he brought to us. And so I, I think often and reflect often on starting as a high school student in small town Iowa, reading about the words. Um, I also read Alex Haley's Roots and the autobiography of Malcolm X as a high school student. And many of, of those words become um, inspiration for me and, and have throughout my journey. Well, I can certainly hear and feel the authenticity in every bit of that. And, and, um, I haven't known you for long or, or very, or very well. Um, we haven't had a chance to interact a whole lot uh, together, but, um, I thank you for giving me a better look at yourself and who you are and how, how it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding a little bit better how, how someone gets, to a, to a place like where you are right now at St. Jude. Um, just what an incredible, um, what an incredible set of values and assets and strengths and talents and passions just all combined. It's, it's, it's very inspiring. Heather, last question for you. Um, what is, what would be your number one piece of advice for leaders? If there was the, the Heather Brandt, the blonde scientist, as it were, what would be the blonde scientists? Um, that's her, that's for our listeners. That's social media handle. Um, <laughs> by the way, where, so how did you come up with blonde scientist? Well, before I, mean, I get to that, uh, number one a, piece of advice. Uh, so, um, you know, there's, there's this thought behind reclaiming stereotypes and reclaiming words so that they lose their power. And um, I have blonde hair. And I think many times in my life, I've experienced this quote unquote, dumb blonde mm -hmm. belief. And it, it may seem trivial and silly, but you know, that manifests in very different ways in people when you hear that enough. And I like to think I, I had the ability to overcome that in most situations, but I sort of reclaimed that. And so it was a bit of a, a take that back. <laughs> Not <laughs> only do I have blonde hair, I'm also a scientist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, here I am, blonde scientist. A, and so it was a bit of a reclaiming one. to take away that power, I think. That's good. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. So if, if, if you had the Heather Brandt number one tenet of leadership for all leaders and, and that was your soundbite, what would it be? What's your number one piece of advice for leaders? Know yourself. You can't lead others if you don't know who you are and you don't know where you've been and you have to know yourself enough to maintain a growth mindset that gives you the courage to know mm. when you need to grow. Wow. Well, you're living it. You're living it. And I appreciate it. That's great advice. Uh, tell us how people can learn more about uh, the work you're doing at St. Jude. What's the best way for them to look that up and learn more? Cause it's fascinating work. Thank you. Well, you can find us at stjude.org forward slash HPV. Uh, you can also email us at prevent hpv at stjude.org. 
You can also go to the main page, that's stjude.org, and find out more information about this amazing place where I hope I get to be a part of this possibility that becomes a reality. Well, you already are. And we'll put a link on the podcast page on our website as well. Heather, thank you. This is rich, 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 rich. I knew it would be. You made it. You made it all that and then some. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Lead on, people.